The book of Acts in chapter 11. Book of Acts in chapter 11. And so now we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 30, and we'll get into that here in just a few moments. Um, before we do, why don't we go to the Lord in prayer and just, just ask His blessing upon our time. God in heaven, we thank you again so much for, um, Lord, just one thing, just for the, the, the pattern of these kids' feet. It's so good to know that we have a future at this church, God, and I just praise you for that. I praise you for the kids, and I just praise you for the ministers that, uh, that, that, that minister to them upstairs, and, and Lord, they're just precious, and I thank you for their lives. And, and God, tonight, I, I want to just thank you for your word. God, this, this book we have in our hands isn't just words on a page. It's, it's your holy word written to us. God, written for our instruction, written for, for our encouragement, written to challenge us and to convict us, to show us your ways, to show us what you want from us, to guide us in our lives. Heavenly Father, what's so amazing about me, uh, to, to me about you, Lord God, is the fact that you know every single one of us, Lord. You, you know the ins and outs of our lives. You know our struggles. You know our deepest thoughts. You know everything that's going on. Yesterday, today, next week. God, you know exactly what we need as individuals. And tonight, I just pray that you would move in our hearts. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would speak to us. I pray that, that, that tonight it wouldn't be me speaking, it would be you speaking, Father, through me. And, and that tonight we would leave this place changed, looking more like Christ than when we walked in. We love you, we thank you, we praise you. We bless this time now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so throughout the study of our book, this book of Acts over the last number of months, we have seen just time and time again that there truly is power in the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, if, if you want to like know a theme of the book of Acts, the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ is really it. I mean, it, it's amazing what we see in this book about how what starts in this little small piece, place in, in Jerusalem just explodes and ends up literally all over the world as it is today. Um, as we get into Acts 11 today, um, understand that we, we've moved from the time of Jesus' death and resurrection probably some like 10 to 15 years. And what started in Jerusalem with a few followers of Jesus literally has spread now to towns and regions all over the place in the Middle East. Um, countless Jews have been saved. And, and, but, but, but last week we, we saw in, in Acts chapter 10 that there, there was this radical shift that began to take place that really would change the demographics of the church forever when, when a Roman soldier um, really a, a Roman officer named Cornelius um, and, and a bunch of his family members and friends came to faith in Jesus and, and, were, and were baptized with the Holy Spirit just like Peter and the apostles were on the day of, of Pentecost. And this was really something that at first not only threw Peter for a loop, but he came to, came to accept it as we saw last week. But as we're going to see today, this thought of these Gentiles, these non-Jews, coming to faith in Jesus and be, being part of God's family was something that the Jewish church, especially there in Jerusalem, had a really hard time just grasping at first until, as we're going to see here, Peter came back and, um, um, and, and kind of explained to them exactly what happened. So we'll be talking about that a little bit today and some other things. So let's go ahead and start with verses 1 through 3, and then we'll, we'll, we'll get into it here. So starting at verse 1 of chapter 11, it says this, Soon the news reached the apostles and the other believers in Judea, that the Gentiles had received the word of God. But when Peter arrived back in Jerusalem, the Jewish believers criticized him. They said, you entered the home of Gentiles 
and you even ate with them. Now, one thing we have to keep in mind here when we get to Acts chapter 11 is that when it came to the Jewish people of their day that we're talking about here, there was this major divide, um, this real schism, if you will, between Jews and Gentiles for a number of reasons. Now, as we think about why these people were so upset about the news they were hearing from what, what, had, what had taken place up there in Capernaum, um, part of it was the fact that, yeah, they were Gentiles, but it was also a Roman soldier, a Roman officer at that. And the Jews of the first century, they really despised the Romans because they looked at them as really usurpers. Um, you know, the land of Israel was supposed to be theirs. God gave it to them, and yet Rome was in control. They didn't have their own king anymore, and they really looked at Rome essentially as an enemy. But it was more than that. Even when it came to the rest of the Gentiles, the rest of the non-Jews, they really looked down on them in, in a lot of ways. And, and honestly, there was really in their hearts a prejudice towards the Gentiles in so many ways, so much so that they, they would refer to the Gentiles as Gentile dogs. Now, if you know anything about the Mosaic Law, the reason they said that is because a dog in the Jewish mind is something that is completely unclean, and so they're kind of referring to Gentiles just like an unclean dog, right? And so they would literally do anything they could to stay afar, as far away from them as possible. And so this idea that, that, that Peter not only led people to Jesus that were Gentiles and Romans nonetheless, I mean, he even went into their homes, which was honestly something that wasn't actually part of the law, although the Jews by this time thought that it was. Now, we have to really, um, we, we have to really be careful um, when it comes to the beliefs we impose that may not necessarily be biblical. Does that make sense? So, so the Jews at this time, like I said, they, they looked at these Gentiles like as this unclean thing. And, and although the law of Moses never said anywhere that you cannot enter the home of a Gentile. This is the way they had taken it. This was kind of the rules that they had in place, right? And so this idea that Peter had the audacity to go in a, in a, in a Gentile's home, a, a Roman soldier at that, to them was just like completely, completely out of line. So anyways, the, the church in Jerusalem, when they kind of caught wind of this, they, they were none too thrilled by it. And, and this idea that he not only went in there, but he actually went in there and, and ate with them was something to them that was just completely out of bounds because something that was in the Jewish law were the food laws. Meaning we, today we call them like kind of the things that are kosher. Even today the, the practicing Jews will, won't eat anything that's not kosher beef or whatever, right? They have all kinds of laws in place. They can't eat shellfish. They can't eat pork and all these different things. And, and so this whole idea that, that Peter would not only go into their home, but, but he would eat with them, it was like... <sighs> Why would he do that? How could he possibly do that? I mean, he was the leading apostle in the church, and, and he would do something like that to them. It was just completely um, something that would just kind of blew their mind. And so, anyways, we get down to verse 4 through 18. Let's go ahead and read that and kind of see Peter's response to the people. And really what he does, he kind of just recounts everything that we talked about last week in chapter 10. It says, Then Peter told them exactly what had happened. I was in the town of Joppa, he said, and while I was praying, I went into a trance and saw a vision. And something like a large sheet was let down by its four corners from the sky. And it came right down to me, and when I looked inside the sheet, I saw all sorts of tame and wild animals, reptiles and birds. I even, um, and I, even, I heard a voice say, get up, Peter, kill and eat them. No, Lord, I replied, I, I have never eaten anything that our Jewish laws have declared impure or unclean. 
But the voice from heaven spoke again, Do not call something unclean if God has made it clean. And this happened three times before the sheet and all that it contained was pulled back up to heaven. And just then, three men who had been sent from Caesarea arrived at the house where we were staying, and the Holy Spirit told me to go with them, and, and not to worry that they were Gentiles. And these six brothers here accompanied me, and we soon entered the home of the man who had sent for us, and he told us how an angel had appeared to him in his home, and, and how he had told, him, um, and, and had told him to send the messengers to Joppa and summon a man named Simon Peter, and he will tell you how you and everyone in your household can be saved. And so as I began to speak, Peter continued, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as he fell on us at the beginning. And then I thought of, of the Lord's words when he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And since God gave these Gentiles the same gift he gave us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to stand in God's way? And when the others heard this, they stopped objecting and began praising God. And they said, we can see that God has also given the Gentiles the privilege of repenting of their sins and receiving eternal life. And so Peter comes back, not received very warmly. They're actually very pretty much ticked off at him. They had the audacity to go into this Gentile's house leading these people to Jesus. He's eating with them and all these different things. And so Peter's like, look, let me explain to you exactly what happened. He's like, this wasn't my idea. This was completely God's doing. I mean, I was minding my own business, on the roof praying. God sent me into this trance. I see these unclean animals, and God says, take and eat. And he's like, look, guys, at first I was like, no way, God, I can't do that. You know these things are unclean, and, but God told me three more times. He's like, no, you don't say something that's unclean that I've declared clean, Peter. Take and eat. And, and he began to realize that this was more than about food. It was, it was about people because the next thing you know is the Holy Spirit's telling him, you need to go downstairs and meet these people. And man, I went downstairs and opened the door, and, and there's this Roman soldier. There's these two Gentiles that are with them, and they tell me this crazy story about how their master Cornelius uh, had seen, had been visited by this angel in his home. I mean, in his home, the angel went in this Gentile's home, which was a big deal, you know, and, and told him, like, you need to find Peter. You need to be saved. You and your household need to be saved. And, and he can tell you exactly how that happens. And so he's like, look, I, I went because the Holy Spirit says so. And we meet. It wasn't even just me. It was these six gentlemen right here next to me. And they went too. They saw the whole thing. We go and we get there. And, and he begins to tell us a story about the angel and, and how we can be saved and all this stuff. And so I begin to share the gospel with them. And man, no longer did I start sharing the gospel with them that the Holy Spirit fell on them and, and they began to speak in tongues just like we did way back in the day of Pentecost. And I mean, if God was going to do that, who was I to stand in their way? I mean, are you kind of getting the picture? Now, I mean, it really is an amazing thing when, when you think about that whole thing that, that kind of took place. And he, he did add one little thing here that I thought was really interesting. In verse 16, when he was talking about the Holy Spirit, um, there was this, this reference from, really from Mark chapter 1 and verse 8 where, where Jesus was talking about this time, about how John was, was baptizing, with, baptizing with water, but there was coming a day that, that this baptism would look different. And, and that's exactly what happened on Pentecost when the Spirit fell on them. They were baptized with the Spirit of God. The exact same thing that happened here with these Gentiles. They were baptized with the Spirit. They were immersed in the Spirit. And, and he gave this incredible sign of, of speaking in tongues. Now just a, a little note on that I thought was interesting. I was reading in my commentary this week from Warren Wearsby. And, and he said this about this little, this little couple verses here. He says, The witness of the Spirit was crucial. 
For this was God's own testimony that he indeed saved the Gentiles. So this was a big deal when it came to the reason they got the same sign. Because if they hadn't had the same sign, the, the Jews would have looked down on them essentially as lesser than or kind of sub-Christians compared to them, if you will. But he goes on to say this, it's interesting that Peter had to go all the way back to Pentecost to find an example of what happened in the home of Cornelius, and this suggests that a dramatic baptism of the Spirit accompanied by speaking in tongues was not an everyday occurrence in the early church. And so although we saw like an Acts 1 there, I think it was, when we were, we're talking about like the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit fell and people were speaking in tongues, and like here in Acts chapter 11, the same thing. You don't see it a lot in between. And, and so it's not like this is something that has to be done, although there are many churches that teach that today. There are churches that teach today that for somebody to truly be saved, they have to have the evidence of speaking in this foreign tongue supernaturally by the Spirit or they're not truly saved, which quite frankly is not even biblical because of 1 Corinthians 12.30 that says literally not everybody speaks in tongues. <laughs> you know. And so anyway, it's kind of an interesting note that this really wasn't the norm, but God used this specific sign for a reason to really validate them as, as true Christians. So anyways, um, to the people's credit there in Jerusalem, as we saw there in, in verse 18, I mean, they, like, look, I mean, after that story, who we'd argue, right? And they just accepted it um, and, and as it was, and they said, okay, um, praise God for, for what he's done. Now, we're going to move on from there and move on to um, verses uh, 19 through 26. It says, Meanwhile, the believers who had been scattered during the persecution after Stephen's death traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch of Syria. They preached the word of God, but only to the Jews. However, some of the believers who went to Antioch from Cyprus and Cyrene um, began preaching to the Gentiles about the Lord Jesus. The power of the Lord was with them, and a large number of those Gentiles believed and turned to the Lord. And when the church at Jerusalem heard what had happened, they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he arrived and saw this evidence of God's blessing, he was filled with joy and encouraged the believers to stay true to the Lord. Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit, and strong in faith, and many people were brought to the Lord. And then Barnabas went on to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him back to Antioch, and both of them stayed with the church there for a full year, teaching large crowds of people. And it was at Antioch that the believers were first called Christians. You know, as we, as we get into these verses, it, it really just occurs to you how sovereign God is and how everything we see here in his timing fits absolutely perfect. Like the fact that God changed the heart of these people in Jerusalem, these Jews, toward the Gentiles, the timing was perfect because what we see next here is seemingly almost simultaneously to that happening, we see something else happening 300 miles north in these other towns that we're talking about here. Now, if you can remember back to Acts chapter 7 when we talked about Stephen, when Stephen was murdered in Jerusalem, kind of the result of, of that along with the persecution that, that kind of followed there in Jerusalem, it drove these Christians out. I mean, thousands of them were driven out of Jerusalem, and they landed all over Israel, way up north, way even past the borders of Israel in different places. Um, and, and a few of these places are mentioned here. One of them is Cyrene. Um, excuse me, Cyprus. Cyprus is actually 
actually an island. And so people traveled from Jerusalem, hopped on a boat, went over to Cyprus, and, and there were Christians there. Um, some of them he said, um, were, were in Phoenicia, some were in Antioch. Both of these cities were like 300-some miles north of Jerusalem. And it also talks about um, one of them being the city of Cyrene, which was actually on the north coast of Africa. So being, literally when it talks about the Christians being dispersed out of Jerusalem, they literally landed completely all over the place. Now, again, we can see that from verse 19 that a few of them landed in, in Cyprus, which was that island in the Mediterranean, and, 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 and so some from there and some from the, the, this, this place of Cyrene, which is in North Africa, they went and they started preaching the gospel to these Gentiles in the city of Antioch. Now, Again, up to this point, for, for 10, 12, 15 years, whatever it's been since the church started, I mean, the gospel was really just secluded to the Jews. I mean, it was really mostly just the Jews or people maybe that weren't Jews by blood but that had transferred over to the Jewish faith and many of them had got saved. So this whole thing about just random Gentiles coming to faith in Jesus and joining the church really very much was a very new thing. So as we can see in verse 22, again, the, the word gets back to Jerusalem that, that these people, these Gentiles way up there in Antioch are coming to Jesus. And so they, they, they send Barnabas um, to go and kind of investigate and see what was kind of going on. Now, why Barnabas? So of all the people in Jerusalem, why in the world would they send him? Well, we kind of see in verse 24, a big part of it was he was a godly man. He was a man full of the Spirit. He was a man that was proven um, to be faithful and, and somebody that, that they could trust to send up there and give them a, a, an accurate assessment of what was going on. And when he got there, he, he knew right away that the stories of these Gentiles coming to faith in Jesus was the real deal because it, it says there that he could see it. It says when he got, when, when the, uh, see, when he arrived in verse 23, it says he, he saw the evidence. And so it wasn't like he was up there like looking around, so where are these Christians at? Like whatever it was, he saw the evidence. You know, how did he know how these people were truly saved? I mean, if you've ever seen somebody that is newly saved, like somebody that just first comes to Jesus, there's just something about them. There's like this joy, this happiness, this confidence in their life, almost like a, a giddiness about them because God has truly changed their life. Was that what was going on up there? I'm not really sure, but whatever it was, it was very obvious. Anyway, over the course of the next weeks, Barnabas stayed there and he, and he began to minister to these new Christians. Specifically, it says he was encouraging them to stay true to the Lord. Now, why was that important for Barnabas to do? It had a lot to do with the fact of where they were at. I want to tell you just for a moment about this city of Antioch. So according to historians, many considered this Syrian Antioch, as it was called, the third greatest city in the Roman Empire behind Rome and Alexandria. And, and Antioch was known for its business and its commerce, for its sophistication and its culture. It was a very, very wealthy city, which will come into play here in a few moments. But it was also known for its immorality. So Antioch was essentially a, a, a one of the hubs in the Roman Empire for pagan worship. Again, we talked about last week how the Romans at this time were, were polytheistic, meaning they, they worshipped multiple gods. Um, as we look at our, at, at our, as our solar system, right, we have like Mercury and Jupiter, Jupiter and Saturn and all these different... 
you may not have noticed, many of them were named after the Roman gods that they literally worshipped, you know, a couple thousand years ago. But the way they would worship them in many of these gods was not good. Um, in fact, the way that many of them were worshipped was, 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 were, were with like these crazy sacrifices that were completely unholy. Um, but they would also um, worship through temple prostitution. And I don't think I needed to go real deep in describing what that's all about, but male and female prostitutes were at the temple, and people would go and they would enter into that as a form of worship to these people. And so this was the environment that these first Christians in Antioch were kind of finding themselves in. And, and if you can imagine a mature Christian coming alongside of baby Christians in that environment is something that would have been extremely extremely important. And that's exactly what he did. He, he came alongside of them, encouraged them, and strengthened them so they didn't fall into that temptation. But it wasn't just the fact that he encouraged them. Verse 24 says that um, through his ministry, many more people were saved. In fact, there were so many more people saved that he looked around and says, I can't do this for my, by, by myself. I need to go find some help. And he went and found none other than Saul. Saul of Tarsus, the man we talked about a few weeks ago, the one who was gloriously saved on the road to Damascus, the one that, had, had, that by, by God was given this ministry to the Gentiles, and yet it had been like, like a dozen years since, he, since this whole time that he was converted, and we don't know exactly what Saul was doing during this time, but, but Barnabas knew that I got to find Saul. Because I know that Saul is the man for the job. Because remember, Barnabas was the one that took Saul to the apostles in Jerusalem and says, look, you, you, this guy's the real deal. I've seen him. I, I, I'm, I'm vouching for him. He, he's, he's truly saved, right? So that was the same Barnabas we see here. And so he's like, this Saul is the one. I know the call that God has placed on his life. I know how God has transformed him. I got to go and I got to find this guy. Now, again, when I say Saul, understand we're talking about the apostle Paul. Same guy, right? The Apostle Paul that we're going to see throughout the rest of the book of Acts. The Apostle Paul that, that wrote 1st, 2nd Corinthians and Romans and, and all, you know, Galatians, Ephesians, all those different books of the New Testament. It's this guy that he goes and finds. You think maybe he wouldn't found the right guy? Absolutely. So, so he goes and he finds Saul. And, and, and Saul comes up there and alongside of, of Barnabas, they, they begin to, to teach these people. And they begin to come alongside of them, and they begin to, 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 um, to disciple them. And for a full year, they're ministering, and more and more people are getting saved. And, and their ministry was so effective. Their discipleship was so effective. And it says there at the end of verse 6 that it was at Antioch that believers were first called Christians. I mean, think about that. In Antioch, this place of just absolute hedonism, a place of just absolute evil, that's the place where these Christians stood out like a sore thumb so much that they said, these people are followers of Christ. And, and the Latin Christian, that, that I-A-N added to word means the party of, and so it was like the, the party of Jesus. It was kind of the idea. That's kind of what Christian means. And people that were just identified, they're with him. They're with that guy, right? And, you know, I was thinking about that, and, you know, I was thinking about that, that day that we're going to be in, in heaven, and it, it talks about that, 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 that supper that we're going to eat with the Lord. You know what I'm talking about? What, what Scripture talks about, that meal that we're going to eat with Jesus. I mean, I'm not sure who the maitre d' is going to be up there, but I can just picture him saying, okay— Jesus party of 17 billion, 
right over here, you know, Jesus party or whatever, you know, and th th these Christians, you know, that's the, the party of Jesus. I just thought that was really, really cool. But, you know, as I was thinking about that as well, I was thinking, boy, that's, that's quite a statement about their faith, wasn't it? I mean, in the culture they were living in that was so godless, they stood firm. So much so that people says they belong to whoever that Jesus is, they're the real deal. And they belong to him. And I just wonder in our own lives, would people say the same thing about us? Like as people see us out and about, as people see us at work, in our neighborhoods, at the store, do they identify us with Jesus by what they see? Would we be given the same term that they're in Jesus' party? You know, we're called to shine the light of Christ in this dark world. You know, we, we've been called not to blend into the world. We've been, we've been called like these people were to stand out like a sore thumb. And that, that's exactly what we're supposed to do, is to live so much for Jesus that people see that, that light in us, that difference in us. And man, that just opens so many doors for us to, to share that hope that is within us, to, show, to share that joy that is within us. To, when people's like, why are you so different? How do you handle those things the way you do? We can say, look, it's because of Jesus. Something I kind of stuck out to me as we were kind of reading that. Anyways, there's no doubt that, that God was truly moving among these people. And as we'll see in a second, once again, God's timing truly is an amazing thing. I just want to read the last few verses here, 27 through 30 of our text. And it says this, During this time, some prophets traveled from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them was named Agabus. And he stood up in one of the meetings and predicted that by the Spirit that the, a great famine was about to come upon the entire Roman world. And this was fulfilled during the reign of Claudius. So the believers in Antioch decided to send relief to the brothers and sisters in Judea and everyone giving as much as they could. And this they did, entrusting their gifts to Barnabas and Saul to take to the elders of the church in Jerusalem. You know, as I said before, the sovereignty and the timing of God is really, truly an amazing thing. I mean, take this man, Agabus, who was described here as this prophet, and he was, I mean, because exactly what he predicted through the Spirit happened. I mean, it just so happened that this man, Agabus, was led to Antioch. Antioch being a place where these just on-fire Gentile Christians were just happened to be residing in this place that was so affluent and so wealthy and so rich. And he gave them this message, and they just happened to think, wow, what an opportunity to minister to our brothers and sisters of Christ back in Jerusalem. <laughs> I mean, isn't God's timing awesome, just when you think about all the, the series of events? Now, what we know about this famine is that it was real when it says it was during the time of, of, time of Claudius. Um, there's actually um, historians from way back then. One of the most famous ones was this man named Josephus, who was an ancient historian. And he, and he writes that in the first century, there were literally famines all over the Roman world around AD 45 and 46 during the reign of Emperor Claudius. I mean, just like the Bible says. You know, the Bible is true. It is accurate. It is, it, we can trust this thing. I mean, it's, it's, it's verified in so many ways. But anyways, look what God does to these, these Gentiles in Antioch. When they hear about their brothers and sisters in Jerusalem in need, like they opened up their pocketbooks and said, hey, we want to help. Like if there was any question at all about how genuine their faith was, like this was the proof in the pudding that their faith was real because it, it wasn't just words. It wasn't just show. 
They're like, no, we're going to put our faith where our mouth is. And if our Christian brothers and sisters in need, we are gonna, we're going to do what we can. I mean, this was clear fruit of their salvation. You know, these people weren't just Christians in word. They were Christians in their deed as well, which honestly is a, the real proof of a person's heart being truly changed. As we look at our lives, we should ask, is, is our faith as Christians just words? Is it just beliefs? Or are there truly actions behind what we say we believe? You know, in the book of James, in chapter 2, verses 17 through 20, listen to what James says here. He says, you see, faith by itself isn't enough unless it produces good deeds. It is dead and useless. Now, someone may argue, some people have faith, others have good deeds, but I say, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I will show you my faith by my good deeds. You say you have faith, for you believe that there is one God, good for you. Even the demons believe this, and they tremble in terror. How foolish, can't you see that faith without good deeds is useless? And these people were clearly living up to it. And it's, it should be something that should be a challenge in our lives. Because if, if, if our faith as a Christian is no more than what we do here, there's a problem with that. Like, if our faith isn't followed up by things that, that, that truly prove the fruit of our Christianity, prove, the, prove the, the, the fruit of our transformation that God is doing, then, then we should really, truly evaluate, do I really belong to the Lord? You know, I mean, it's just something we should think about. I mean, are, are we showing people the joy of God? Are we, are we kind? Are we patient? Are we, are we, are we moral people that are, that are following the Word of God? Are, 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 do we do good to people when we see people that are in need? Do we, do we meet those needs? Those things are, are fruit of the Spirit of God changing us. And if there's no fruit, if there's been no change at all, boy, that we should really stop and ask ourselves, is it real? Is it real? Think back to when you first received Christ as your Lord and Savior. I mean, think back to that moment where, where, where you looked to Christ and said, come into my life, be my Lord, be my Savior. Has anything changed? If nothing's changed, you may need to go back and talk to the Lord. But it wasn't so with these people. These people truly, truly had a heart change. Now, as I think about the sovereignty of God here, it just really is an amazing thing. I mean, think about the coincidences that's taken place so far, even, even years before this. Like, Stephen's murdered. Christians are driven out all over the Roman Empire. Many of them land in the cities, in different cities. God moves in their hearts, and those people just happen to go up to Antioch and just happen to start telling Gentiles about Jesus. The, 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 the Jews in Jerusalem just happen to send Barnabas, who ends up bringing Saul. And then Ab, Agabus just happens to land in Antioch and predict this famine. And this whole thing results in these Gentiles, who at first these Jews didn't want anything to do with, they ended up being the means of God's provision during a time where they probably would have died. I mean, some of the historians talk about how people in Jerusalem became cannibalistic during this time, eating every, and, and many, many, many people perished from starvation. And yet God had it all under control through reaching the most unlikely of people to be able to minister to people way back there in Jerusalem that first didn't want them. I mean, it really is just an amazing thing when you think about God. Now, there's a lot of different ways we could go with this, and just for a few moments as we kind of bring this to a close, I want to talk about just a few um, thoughts of application for our own lives. And the first one really is just a question. 
And the question is this, are there people God has placed in our area of ministry that maybe we haven't yet considered? Like, again, when we think about the events that took place in Acts 10 with Cornelius and his family, and even in Acts 11 when these people in Antioch got saved, like, these were people that the Jewish Christians at the time never even considered as being a part of their mission. I mean, it was the furthest thing from their mind reaching these Gentiles, and yet these were exactly the people that God had called them to reach. And I just wonder, like, the, the people in our area, who is God calling us to reach? Who are the people that God has placed right in front of us that, that maybe we have overlooked? You know, when you think about the ministry of Jesus, for instance, we were talking about this, I think, last night with some people, with some of the leaders in here. When you think about Jesus, like, he didn't, like, go to churches. They weren't like churches. He didn't go to synagogues, right, to do most of his ministry. It wasn't in the temple he did most of his ministry. Where was most of his ministry? It was out and about. It, it was in, in the streets and out in fields and along the sea and in a boat. And, and he did all these things. And he went to where the people were. Like, he, he went to the needy. He, he went to the disparaged. I mean, he went to the hurting. I mean, he, he, he reached people that nobody at that time would have ever thought to reach. He went to women. I mean, Jesus gave women a voice who in that society didn't have one. He went to the poor. He, targeted the, the, he didn't target the wealthy people who could finance his ministry, nor did he target the influential people of society who could have promoted him. Instead, who did he target? Fishermen. I mean, just, just common, run-of-the-mill, everyday folk. I mean, people who are in need of hope. That's who Jesus targeted. He targeted the unclean. Those in society that everybody else avoided. I mean, think about the lepers that he healed. Think about the woman who has been bleeding for years that he, that he healed. People, people like that that the rest of the society just, just pushed off and rejected, had wanted nothing to do with, and yet those were the people that Jesus came and brought hope to. It wasn't just the unclean. It was those people that were looked at as oppressors. Think about Zacchaeus, the tax collector. I mean, what about Matthew? One of his disciples was a tax collector. I mean, these people were, were despised by the Jews. They were Jews, but they exploited the rest of the people, stealing money, essentially. And yet Jesus ministered to them and reached them. I mean, he even ministered to racial enemies, like the Samaritan woman. Jews couldn't stand the Samaritans. They were like half-breeds, essentially. And yet Jesus ministered to her. Like Jesus reached out to people that no one else had considered. He reached out to the broken, to the hurting, to the needy, to the desperate. And when he offered them hope, they came running literally in droves. I mean, even what he said, he said um, excuse me, in Luke 4 and verse 18 and 19, listen to what Jesus said about himself. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for He has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. That's who Jesus' focus was. He didn't go to the religious people. He wasn't trying to take people from that synagogue over to this synagogue. No. He reached out to the world. He reached out to the broken. And I just wonder who are those people like that around us? Who, who are the people in our communities that are the needy, that are the hurting, that are the broken, that are the desperate, the people looking for hope? 
Like, who are the people out in our communities that, that we look at and go, I just don't know. They, they, I think they're maybe a little too far gone. People that, that other churches look at and go, we don't want them in our church. Who, who are those people? I mean, think about the Gentiles in Antioch. They were just a bunch of drunk heathens that were having sex with a bunch of prostitutes. And yet, those were the people that these Christians wouldn't reach. You know, sometimes I think that we sometimes, maybe even unintentionally, avoid the seemingly hard-to-reach people and maybe look to easy ones instead. But, but, but if Jesus went for the broken, shouldn't that be our target as well? I mean, we, we have a whole society right now of some really, really messed up people. I mean, think about the kids all over the place that are just confused beyond imagination. Confused by what our society is telling them and teaching them. Kids that have been indoctrinated with all kinds of just grotesque lunacy. Kids that have been abused. Kids that have been abandoned by the people that should be the ones that love them the most. Families that have been torn apart by divorce. People trapped in addictions that can't seem to break free. People that are just struggling right now to put food on the table, pay the electric bill. You know what convicted me? is like, those are the people that Jesus would have went after. Those are exactly the people that Jesus went after in his ministry. And it just, I'm asking myself, like, 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 how do we reach those people? Like, if those are the type of people that Jesus reached, shouldn't we do the same? I mean, I think the answer is clearly yes. And then we ask ourselves, is it going to be, is it going to be easy? No. Is it going to be messy at times? Absolutely. But like, what would happen if we really trusted in the power of God and his gospel and begin to show these people the love of Christ and share with them the truth of the gospel? What, what could take place if we just dared to believe in the power of God? What I believe what would happen is people would be set free from addictions. Families and marriages would be restored. Kids and teenagers would find true love and acceptance that they've never experienced before. People's lives would be transformed in our communities and our schools that we're so frustrated with right now. One by one by one, we could see amazing change through the power of God. How do we go about doing that? I'll be honest with you, it's a good question. I don't know. I want your help, I can tell you that. We need to figure this out together. But the bigger question is, is will we do it? Will we step out of our comfort zones? Will we step out of our social circles to reach the broken and the lost? That really is the bigger question. And, and the, kind of my second thought in application is this, is like when we reach those people, and I, I'm not going to say if because I'm going to trust the Lord in faith and say when we start reaching those people, my next question is will we be willing and ready to do what it's going to take to strengthen them and, and help them grow in their walk with Christ? You know, one thing I love about Acts 11 is that, that Barnabas and, and Saul didn't just, well, Barnabas didn't just go and be like, Yep, they're good, and turned around and went home. That's not what he did. No, he went there and he stayed. And he saw a bunch of these baby Christians, and he looked around him at society and says, man, these people are going to fall right back into that sin if I don't intervene. And so he took the time, and he, and he came alongside of them and, and encouraged them in the Word of God and, and, and taught them and, and discipled them. And, and as that group grows, he's like, i got to find help. So he goes find Saul or the Apostle Paul who comes back, and they together for an entire year just pour themselves into these people. 
And friends, the, the importance of discipleship in a new Christian's life could not be more important. Like if God is going to allow us to reach new people, we had better make sure that we're ready when they come. The question is, how do we get ready? It, it's by preparing our hearts and minds right now. You know, a question we should ask ourselves is this, like, why do we study our Bibles? Why do we pray? Why do we come to Bible studies? Why do we come to church? You know, I think for, for a lot of us, it's, it's very easy to look at those things and go, well, I mean, I do those things because God tells me to, right? I, I do those things because I, I, I benefit from it. I mean, I, I'm growing and, and these things are happening, and that's fantastic, and we, and we should, right? I mean, that's, that's why we get into this thing. We, we grow, we learn, we're convicted, we change, and God moves, and, and those things are, are awesome. But, like, but what if we had this shift of mindset and started thinking along the ways that, that Jesus approached his ministry? Like Matthew 20 and verse 28, Jesus says, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That was his mindset. I think he looked at himself in the mirror every day. If they had mirrors, and went, it's not about you. It's about them. Maybe not. I don't know. It's my, just my mind wandering. But can I tell you something? We should do that every day. When we get up in the morning and brush our teeth, a good practice would be to look ourselves square in the mirror and say, it's not about you. It's about the people God has placed in my life today to reach. And I, can, I, can I tell you something? If we can gain that mindset, there's like this amazing transition that will begin to take place. Like, when we get into our Bibles, it won't be just like, okay, this is for me, this is for me. No, it's like, okay, God, fill me up as much as you can and give me as much wisdom as you can because I know that I have people that I need to come alongside of and, and, and pour out to. I mean, think about how that would change, how we approach our, our Bible study. It, it's not just about... Oh, okay, got to get through this for the day. No, it's like, oh, Lord, feed me so I can pour this out. How would that change us? I mean, think about prayer. Instead of just praying for, for hours and, and God bless me, what if, our, what if our, we had this shift to where, yeah, we still pray for those things, but, man, we just start crying out to God for the lost, crying out to God for these new Christians that we're reaching to, man, Lord, we, we need to strengthen them and come alongside of them. Think about how it would change church when... It's not just coming here to feel good for the week and go home, but man, I get to come here and I get to pour my life into somebody else. Man, God, I know there's somebody here tonight that's hurting. Somebody at church tonight's going to be maybe going through something, struggle. Maybe somebody at church, man, they had to have this victory in their, and, and man, I, Lord, I want to be able to come alongside of them and encourage them and strengthen them and pat them on the back. Can I tell you something? That's exactly who we need to be. We need to have this mindset if we're going to be ready to minister to people. We have to get to the point that we understand life isn't just about the person we look at every day in the mirror. It's about the people God has called us to. And just the last thought as we close is simply this. What could God do through those people if we do the work to reach them? If we do the work to reach the broken and the hurting, what could God do? Just a hypothetical thought for a moment. What if Peter refused to go to Capernaum and lead Cornelius to Jesus? Not only would they have still been lost, the people in Jerusalem may not have had the heart change they did as we see here in Acts chapter 11. 
And without that heart change, when they heard about the Gentiles in Antioch being saved, they probably may would probably more than likely had a different response. And they probably wouldn't have sent Barnabas up there to see what was going on. They probably would have sent somebody else that wasn't any too happy. And yet, that's not what happened, is it? No. That's not what happened. See, because Peter heeded the voice of God, because the people in Jerusalem received Peter's word and had the change of heart, because they sent Barnabas, everything we see here falls in place as God had planned. Gentiles are saved, famine happens, food sent, lives are saved, all that happens. And not even just that, I mean, think about this. Barnabas goes to get Saul, Saul comes up to help, we're going to see Saul goes back with Barnabas to Jerusalem, and then they're sent out on missionary journeys. And the man we know is the Apostle Paul begins. I mean, what could happen if we just simply do the work of God? Like what ministries could open up? What could God do through the people we reach? How would that begin to impact our communities and schools? How much life and excitement would that bring to our church if we chose to do the work that these people here in Acts 11 and Acts 10 and what if we did it? Can we dare to think big? Can we dare to trust the word of God and trust the power of the gospel? Look, I don't know exactly what God's going to do, but I know it's going to be exciting and I know it's going to be worth it when it comes. But we have to commit ourselves to it. We have to say, Lord, I'm your man, I'm your woman, send me. We have to step out in boldness. We have to trust him. And as we do, God will move that we can be assured of. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this time together. Thank you, God, so much for your word that encourages and strengthens us so. God, I, I know this week that I have been challenged by this message, Lord, because I, I, I think I can be honest with everybody here that sometimes it's the easy people that I'm drawn to. Because God, honestly, sometimes I look at the people I talked about tonight and I, I look at them and I get frustrated. I look at them and I get irritated. I look at them and I get angry because they're different than me, because they have different beliefs than me. God, will you change my heart? Will you change all of our hearts, Father? Will, will, you, just, will you help us to see that the, the people out there, no matter what they look like, no matter what they're wearing, no matter what color their hair is, they are souls in need of Jesus Christ. And if we don't share the gospel with them, they will spend eternity in hell. God, will you break us? Father, will you, will you just crush our hearts, Lord God, at that thought? So much so, Father, that we will step out of our comfort zones, step out of our social circles, and, and be intentional somehow, some way, God. And we're going to need your wisdom on how to do it. Because God, I'll be honest with you, God, I don't know. But what I do know is your word says if, if we lack wisdom, we can come to you and you will give it to us generously, Lord. And so we are asking right now, God, for your wisdom. We are asking for your strength. We are asking, Lord God, that you would just open up doors of ministry that, that we can reach out and see lives change through the power of the Spirit and the power of your gospel. Heavenly Father, the only other thing I would ask tonight, Lord God, is there may be somebody in this place that, that they themselves are unsure about eternity. Father God, one thing is unmistakable is that is death is coming. Lord God, your word tells us that every single one of us is destined to die because the wages of sin is death. 
God, your word tells us that when we pass from this world, we're going to be for an eternity of one or two places, either with you in glory or in a place called hell forever in, in just agony. Lord God, your word says that we can have heaven. We can be with you, but the only way we can do that is through a relationship with your son, Jesus. By, by looking to what he did on the cross, by looking to his death and resurrection, and by saying, Lord, I need him. Jesus, I need what you did on that cross to count for me. I need you to come into my life. I need you to be my Savior. I need you to forgive me of my sins because I want to be a part of your forever family. God, if no, anybody in this place, anybody listening to this tonight has never made that decision, let them tonight call out in faith and receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Father, we love you. We thank you. We praise you. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Amen. As we close,